Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important. Thus, I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I'm exploring some racial reckoning films, as recommended by Mark H. Harris of BlackHorrorMovies.com, and in this week's episode, I'll be talking about um, 1991's The People Under the Stairs, written and directed by the late Wes Craven. But before I get into the film and the topic at hand, wanted to send out uh, some some thank yous. Not to specific people, I guess, though at this point, with um, the minuscule number of downloads uh, that my episodes are getting. This thank you probably does only go to um, some uh, small group of specific people. But I did want to say thank you um, if you pay attention to the ID Movies Badly Facebook page, um, <clears throat> which I must admit is has been kind of woefully neglected in the past few weeks, um, which is in no small part attributed to my returning to uh, my job five days a week. But aside from that... Um, I posted today that I got a notification from Podbean, of course, the server where I host I Do Movies Badly episodes, congratulating me on 100,000 downloads, which seems kind of insane. I mean, yes, I've been doing this podcast for, has it been five years, I guess? It's been it's been such a long time that I've forgotten, and there was a kind of a layoff there for a while because I had... Uh, put the podcast on a hiatus. There were some breaks because of technical difficulties that lasted for a while. It's, it's been a while that I've been doing this podcast, and so I guess you could um, assume that at some point I would hit, I would have hit 100,000 downloads, but it still sounds weird to think about that, especially considering in, in the interest of full disclosure, my downloads are per episode pretty small and definitely in, uh, in comparison to where they were when I started this podcast for the first time. I have seemingly lost a significant uh, percentage of my initial listenership, and yet, um, and and you, if you've been sticking with me from the beginning, or you have been um, at least paying attention since uh, before my my hiatus a couple of years ago, you know that that was something that affected me. That I that I um, contributed to my lack of desire to continue this podcast, you know, not wanting to kind of put it out into a vacuum, but wanting to engage and wanting to have dialogue and wanting to share with an online film community that was passionate about um, cinema that um, didn't necessarily adhere to a lot of opinions and consensus that uh, was out there, whether it be mainstream film criticism or internet film criticism, though I realize that there is a significant amount of overlap between those two. Um, and I was kind of discouraged, so I, I gave up for a little bit and eventually picked it back up with this idea that, you know, it doesn't matter how many people listen to me or how many emails I receive, but just doing this for the sake of doing it, for the sake of engaging with movies, with being able to watch new things that I've never seen before or being able to engage things that I have seen before but through a, a new lens or, or a different perspective because of how long it's been and how I've t- changed and developed as a person. 
So, you know, if you, if you continue something for long enough, um, you know, there's enough of a, of a, there's enough people out there that you'll, you'll hit some type of audience. And if you continue for long enough, uh, I could cynically say, well, of course I hit one, that 100,000, uh, downloads, but I am, I am extremely grateful that I, that I have 100,000 downloads, that there are people out there who have been listening continuously. Maybe you have only picked it up recently. Maybe you have been going since I first started this and you were, you were on board from episode one in which I talked to Tyler Smith about the films of David Mamet. Um, maybe you've been on board the whole time. Maybe you haven't been, but either way, there are, there's someone out there, some people, um, listening to this podcast right now, maybe you're on a, a commute to work or from work, maybe you're at work, maybe you're working out, maybe you're um, just laying on a couch, I don't know. Uh, the specifics don't matter as much as what matters is there have been enough people... Oh, you may hear the, uh, the, the, uh, the sounds from outside of people still uh, in New York City thanking essential workers for their, for their service during the pandemic, but... Um, I am thankful to people that have, that have contributed to 100,000 downloads and also to the guests who have come on to engage with me and share their enthusiasm for a specific filmmaker or a genre or whatever. But those people who have in some way, whether big or small, uh, one time or continuously have contributed to the proliferation and the continuation of this podcast, which has ultimately resulted in 100,000 downloads. So thank you very much, everyone, no matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter whether you agree with me or disagree with me. Um, thank you so much for 100,000 downloads. And now with that, let's get into the people under the stairs. And I can't remember... No, I think I did. I, I, I know I, I spoke when I was speaking with Mark. I'd mentioned that this was a movie that I had seen before and was really off-put by it or didn't know what to take away from it or expect from it because I must say I, I'm, not, I'm not really a, a Wes Craven enthusiast um, when it comes to horror directors. I, I've certainly uh, seen... A fair amount of his stuff. I mean, coming into this, I had seen this obviously before. I had seen, um, you know, Friday the 13th Part 1 and Wes Craven's New Nightmare, The um, the Serpent in the Rainbow, which is actually quite a cool film that I think is re relatively overlooked, um, and uh, Red Eye, but uh, Scream, obviously. Um, and, and aside from that, not, not a whole lot. So I'd seen enough of his stuff to kind of uh, have an awareness of who he is and appreciation for what he has contributed to the genre, but not, I hadn't engaged with his stuff enough or at a, or hadn't engaged with him in a certain period of my life where I could really appreciate him as a filmmaker, a director, the kind of stories he was trying to tell. So when I saw the people under the stairs, all I knew was, well, this is not as groundbreaking as um, the, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, and this is also not as clever or meta as Scream, because certainly once uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare and then uh, certainly Scream came out, you know, it sort of revitalized his career, but then he sort of became known as um, not necessarily a meta guy, but a guy who knew, who had worked in, in horror enough where um, now what he was adding to it was, um, you know, uh, a meta level or, or a deconstruction of it or kind of picking it apart because what genre horror the horror genre had been at that point was kind of tired and so 
being the crafty veteran, the insightful guy, the the path paver, he knew enough where he could kind of contribute to this series um, or to this this uh, wave of films that were interested in kind of um, deconstructing horror instead. So I saw the people under the stairs, and it was it was it was weird. <laughs> it still is weird, um, but I know that when I first saw it, my initial reactions to it were that it was it was totally inconsistent. Um, it wasn't scary, and it was poorly acted, or at least. Um, I couldn't take the actors and their performances seriously. And um, looking at it now through the lens of, um, or, or armed with the insight, I guess, of having the conversation with Mark and also just learning a bit more about Wes Craven and his political thoughts, his activism, his attitudes and opinions towards the world, I'm, I, I can see it for what it was always meant to be and what he was trying to do. And what he was trying to do was something different and unique, and a film that more than likely could not be made today, and and not because it's controversial or because it is specific to a time and a place, though I will get into uh, in a little bit just this, this idea of, of what it was speaking to at that time, but just it is such a unique movie trying to toe a fine line between real-life horror and also black sometimes slapstick comedy um and it's it's kind of clunky it doesn't entirely work at all times but it was because he was he was trying to do so much in 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 the sense of what he was trying to draw attention to in the real world in his social commentary um he was he was creating a satire he was being very biting and dark and he wasn't he wasn't making stuff for the sake of the genre like you could say with um Nightmare on Elm Street, or um, his later offerings like Shocker, um, and he certainly, you, you know, um, he was he wasn't painting in broad strokes. He was being very specific, and he was doing something that even he hadn't really done very much of before. I mean, it was done during an odd period in his career as well. Um, like I said, I'm I'm no Wes Craven expert or even enthusiast. Um, but I know that, you know, he's, it seems like he had kind of three stages of his career. There was kind of, um, you know, his kind of path-paving horror when it came to uh, The Hills Have Eyes. And I suppose you could have The Hills Have Eyes 2 in there and um, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. And just this being this uh, a guy who was known for these original creations and creatures and this unique voice um, in horror and kind of... Um, speaking to or, or utilizing horror to kind of speak to a larger uh, kind of a larger attitude of America in you know during that time period and then um, once he came out with um, Wes Craven's New Nightmare and then Scream after that he became known as I said like kind of the the meta guy the the horror veteran who is who is uh, of course tasked with being able to deconstruct and comment on um, horror in America because he had been there and he had worked in it for his basically his entire career, and whether that's, um, from what I understand, that's kind of um, not necessarily um, by his choice, but that was certainly um, the role that he fulfilled. And so in between that, you do have um, a lot of films, which I'm sure horror enthusiasts and, 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 uh, and, you know, real horror nerds can correct me on this, and by all means, feel free to correct me and edify me. Um, email me at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com or tweet at me at Nolan Fixes Teeth. But it seems like in between those two periods, especially after Nightmare on Elm Street and before, um, let's say, New Nightmare, um, he was experimenting or trying to do 
things that are a little bit different, but also um, things that got lost um, because you know, uh, you know, the the three films leading up to this one, to the people under stairs, were. Um, the Serpent and the Rainbow, which once again, like I said, I actually really enjoyed, um, though it's been a while since I've seen it, uh, but was set in, I believe, in Haiti and kind of dealt with, uh, and it was kind of a, a zombie movie in a way, but certainly stepped outside of American culture and sought to explore mythology and legend from a, a different non-Caucasian, non-American culture. Um, shocker which uh, I remember seeing, I don't remember caring for, um, and Night Visions, which is a movie I have no idea of whatsoever. But the, these are movies that kind of get, with the exception of maybe The Serpent and the Rainbow, kind of get lost in the larger conversation of the canon of Wes Craven. And then you have The People Under the Stairs, which is so bizarre in how it doesn't seem to fit into the canon of Wes Craven and also doesn't seem to fit neatly into one period or another of his career. Um, he was trying to scare people basically with reality in this, um, but he was doing so in a way that would be entertaining instead of bleak, because I think the themes that he's dealing with and the characters that he creates to explore what he is trying to explore, um, if he would try to paint this in a realistic brush, or if he was trying to, you know, if he was making this in the same kind of, um, low-budget, bleak, um, re uh, I can't, I, I think I've said realistic already, but um, basically if he was trying to, to make this in the style of, let's say, um, The Last House on the Left, um, this would have been a suffocating, emotionally bleak and just irredemptive movie, basically. I mean, because he's dealing with racism, he's dealing with gentrification, he's dealing with uh, class oppression, he's dealing with... Um, things that were happening in real life throughout all of American history that are certainly still happening now. And if he approached it from that perspective, uh, like, 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 a, uh, you know, like the uh, last house on the left in the sense of a really almost kind of documentary like approach, this would have been such a labor to sit through and really emotionally oppressive so he's making a movie which is dealing with real life horrors um realities that affect people every single day in a very dramatic and life-changing sort of way but he also has to make it entertaining he has to make it accessible for a larger audience so he makes it a satire, and he makes it kind of purposely goofy in some parts. Certainly, the characters of mommy and daddy, and we'll and we'll hit on them in a in a little bit, um, because he has to make it appealing to a, a mainstream audience. Not not because he has to dumb it down, but because the statement he's trying to make about the society that he he lives in and 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 deals with on a daily basis, the country that he lives in. He has to make it palatable and accessible for other people to understand. He doesn't want to preach at people, but he does still want to poke fun at oppressive, evil forces that he is seeing on a daily basis. I am going to be quoting extensively from a retrospective article on the people under the stairs from a, a website called Daily Dead. Um, which I will link to, of course, in the show notes for this episode and also for the Facebook page as well, if you want to read it yourself. And I would highly recommend you do because it helped me appreciate this film even a bit more than I already did while watching it. Um, 
but I want to share with you uh, the first quote from that retrospective, which which speaks more to what he was trying to do with this movie, which did seem so unique in at least when you look at the rest of his canon and sort of how he approached horror and and how he is approaching it here specifically in The People Under the Stairs. Less a horror film than it is a pitch-black comedy, The People Under the Stairs is Wes Craven's most overtly political film. There's nothing apologetic about it, and, like Joe Dante would later do in Homecoming, Craven has something he wants to say and isn't shy about letting it rip on screen. Last House on the Left and Hills Have Eyes were both made in reaction to the Vietnam War, Craven was angry and moved to write and direct a pair of films about man's capacity for cruelty and violence, the effects of which leave every single character physically or psychologically devastated. It's perhaps no accident that The People Under the Stairs was born out of the first Gulf War and a decade of the middle class shrinking, AIDS getting swept under the rug, Iran-Contra, and trickle-down economics. Craven saw what he felt were the wrong people seizing all the power, and this movie is his response. So, the, the article goes on to detail this idea of how Mommy and Daddy, the horrendous couple at the, at the center of this movie, the, certainly the, the primary antagonists, um, are stand-ins for uh, Ronald and Nancy Reagan. And sure enough, if you, if you think of it, or if you, if you read this a little bit more uh, further and you read, you know, look into it more in the film, you, you certainly see the parallels. Um, the, uh, the male figure or the male character who is, who is never really actually named, I, I believe they're, they're both just credited as the man and the woman or like the dad and mom, um, refers to his wife as Mommy, which of course was a Reagan's pet name for his wife at the time. And even there, there's a, um, there's some physical similarities um, when it comes to um, the uh, the main character, or I'm sorry, not the main character, but um, the the man character Everett McGill. There, he he. I'm not saying he's a dead ringer for Ronald Reagan, but certainly in his hairstyle, especially when he's trying to portray that he is a civil human being, when the police and when visitors are around, he certainly has somewhat of a of a Reagan esque um, quality to him, if you will. Um, and then also th- there's a scene. Um, when a, a finally when fool gets into the house and he is um, one of the many times that he is trying to escape from the man, um, I believe it's when Roach pops out from uh, you know behind a wall and and waves him in. Um, it's very quick, but there is a moment where um, you see you know there's a bunch of of pictures of people that are pinned to the wall um, in whatever room they're in. I think it's a bathroom. I could be wrong about that, but one of the people. Um, displayed kind of prominently, or at least his picture is bigger than many of the others that are that are hanging on that wall, is Ronald Reagan, and of course, um, that that's you know that is once again kind of a sly little nod to what Craven is doing here, what Craven is commenting on, who he is railing against in this movie, um, and like I said, kind of at the beginning, this man and this woman they have to be over the top, because the reality of this, the kind of story that Wes Craven is trying to tell, specifically when it comes to the story of gentrification and wealthy white people removed from urban areas but still capitalizing, and you could even say feeding on urban areas, um, is much less hopeful in real life. You don't have the stories of the wealthy white evil people getting their comeuppance from the people that, that they are trying to wrong. You don't necessarily get a lot of happy endings when it comes to um, we are going to evict you 
tear down your home and build office spaces, which are going to financially benefit us. The eviction has never saved, I don't want to say never, but it's really saved at the last minute. These, these people's lives are regularly discarded. And so we have to, he has to make these characters goofy and over the top because he has to be clear to us that we are in on the joke as well, that these people deserve what is happening to them, that these people deserve laughter and scorn because they are fucking ridiculous and they are absurd in what they do. Um, and it's interesting to me that these, I don't think you can necessarily call these people religious. They keep speaking about how other people deserve to go to hell, um, whether it's strangers or whether it's um, the police or whether it's their own daughter, quote-unquote daughter. Um, but it's interesting to me that the, the, the only characters in here that really do speak uh, to theology or religion, at least when it comes to Judeo-Christian concepts of religion, are people that are speaking about it only from the perspective of vengeance, of repercussions, of punishment. Um, there is really no mention in this movie, or no characters really speak about um, the goodness of, uh, of a religion, of love and of grace and of forgiveness and of redemption. Instead, religion, Judeo-Christian religion, is wielded like a hammer, like a weapon to bludgeon people or to threaten them with. It sounds a whole lot like mainstream evangelicalism and specifically how um, there is, and there certainly was, I, I, I could speak to this, you know, in the environment that I grew up, but this idea of um, not necessarily taking part in actions because of how they could benefit others, but taking part in actions because of wanting to avoid punishment, doing things um, not necessarily to get into heaven, no matter what your concept of heaven or the afterlife is, but doing things to avoid going to hell. It's very much a, a mainstream American evangelical kind of kind of mindset. Um, and you even have, you know, and it's manifested in the, the literal people that live under the stairs. You know, the things they did. Did they speak evil? Did they hear evil? Did they see evil? And the only reason that Alice is is not living under the stairs. The only reason that Alice is able to kind of maintain some type of normalcy, which is still not normal because she has been forbidden to go outside, but is because she has avoided doing all these bad things. She has seen no evil. She has spoken no evil. She has heard no evil. It's not that she has done good things, but she has avoided doing bad things, or at least things that they have deemed as bad. And when you look at this that character, these attitudes, specifically through the lens of America in the 80s and the early 90s, and specifically when it comes to Ronald and Nancy Reagan, who turned their back on the AIDS pandemic. And, you know, you can kind of see what he is doing, and not even kind of see, you can absolutely see what he's doing and, and the parallels that he is trying to make. The second quote that I want to pull from when it comes to this... Um, this Daily Dead article speaks once again more uh, more to this. Specifically, who these people are, who these characters are, and what they represent. But he said, but uh, the article says they're making a fortune by keeping everyone else poor, hoarding the wealth as a means of gentrifying the neighborhood. They stand by as a lower class literally falls between the cracks in their house. 
It's a none too subtle bit of commentary, but there's nothing particularly subtle about the people under the stairs. Craven is working with a sledgehammer, not a razor, and while the movie is messy, that's part of its charm. He's taking big, broad swings and isn't afraid to break the furniture. Um, and I, I love that because it, I can't really add much to that because that, that's exactly what what I felt when I was watching the movie and they express it in, in such a way which which um, which is perfect. And yeah, I, I mean, like I, like that article says, the the execution of this movie isn't perfect. Um, some of Craven's execution is a little bit clunky, and some of his dialogue is a bit kind of un-PC. I mean, the, the scenes in in the ghetto, in the, in the urban settings, are a little kind of exactly as the media would have you believe um, the inner city is like, where there's, you know, people, you know, doing heroin on the stairs and all, everyone, and, you know, it's just kind of this poverty and, and squalor. Um, but also including that in a satire which is making fun of or, 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 or poking at and tearing apart these oppressive systems, um, it almost sort of makes sense to include that because everything is a suspect, everything is on trial here, including the media's depiction of what an inner-city neighborhood may look like. But it's also, I mentioned this with the conversation with Mark, that it, it's also Wes Craven using his position to tell the story from a viewpoint and experience that wasn't being largely seen. This is an example of a person using his white privilege. Here's a filmmaker, you know, one of the most, uh, arguably the most famous horror filmmaker of all time. Certainly, I think you could say that in the 1990s, um, a guy who is wealthy, who has influence, and who at a time could make whatever movie that he wanted to make. And he chose to make a movie about a young African-American kid who has been born and raised in systemically oppressive and racist systems fighting back against the people that have most directly contributed to his oppression, those people getting their comeuppance, this kid and his family and the people and other people, the people under the stairs, who have been victims of this oppression, getting a happy ending, getting their freedom, getting the, the thing that they've always wanted and they've always deserved. This isn't a story about about a, a white savior coming in and, and saving, um, you know, a, a bunch of inner city struggling people. This isn't a story uh, that focuses on on the misery porn aspect of look at how hard it is to live in the city. Look at how terrible you know these people have it, and just kind of wallowing in this this suffering to to shame audiences. This is a story about. A demographic or the representation of a demographic that at that time was not largely depicted in mainstream cinema had kind of um, fallen off when it came to representation in the horror genre specifically and he makes it a story for those people for that audience to celebrate and to delight in and, and just have fun with and for a wide audience to have fun with as well because there are clearly evil people here that are clearly ridiculous and they get exactly what they deserve. The bad people get exactly what they deserve and the good people get exactly what they deserve as well. This was a movie that he had the power to make and to show to a wide audience and a wide audience saw it. 
I think it was made on a budget of something like $6 million and made something like four or five times that when it was released. So this was a movie that people were delighting in, were being entertained by. And if he had taken the approach of The Last House on the Left or The Hills Have Eyes and just kind of made it this bleak, kind of really cynical um, approach or, or attitude, this would have been an unwatchable movie. It probably would have still been well made, but unwatchable because it's like, well, why am I, why am I choosing to engage with this horribleness, basically? There is still horribleness at the center of this story, but he chooses to make it entertaining and redemptive and enjoyable, in which, though it wasn't happening in real life, this is a story in which everyone gets exactly what we believe they deserve. It's a satire, it's, it's sort of a fairy tale, it's a fantasy, and he was able to tell someone else's story and be able to get that out to a wide audience that's using his white privilege, and he was using it for good, basically. The third and final quote that I will pull uh, from this Daily Dead article is is kind of wrapping up everything that I've been talking about, but done in, in, in a better way, which isn't a 30-minute podcast episode. But they say, Maybe it was the sense of lunatic fun to which audiences responded. It certainly wasn't the scares. That's not what Craven is going for here. The monster is no longer some supernatural creation. Gone are the days of Freddy Krueger and Horace Pinker. The people under the stairs make mankind the monster again. It's a movie about the horrors of the class divide. In fact, the titular people under the stairs hardly appear in the movie. It's more about their presence being felt as a symbol of the repressed, those who have been discarded and silenced. Literally, they've had their tongues and ears removed. When at the end of the film we see the zombie-like prisoners walking free out into the night as all the hoarded cash rains down on the neighborhood, Craven isn't just returning what rightfully belongs to its residents. He's completely changing the status quo. He's talking about a revolution. And there may be some people out there who are thinking, well, that's reading a little bit too deep into this. Sure, he may have been um, talking about social commentary in the sense of gentrification, but, you know, talking about revolution and all these kind of things, like, that seems a little bit too extreme. You're probably just reading into it. But this is a guy who had a history of activism in his past. This is a guy who, in the final days of the Clinton administration, helped make a documentary about him. This is a guy who donated his time and props for an auction in the early 2000s or mid-2000s, or early aughts, I guess we call it, um, that would benefit Planned Parenthood and the Dreamcatchers Foundation, which um, I believe uh, teaches entrepreneurship to children in underserved communities. So he donated these things. He donated his time. They got a, a, a two-minute phone call from Wes Craven. They got tickets to uh, the movie Pulse that he co-wrote with Vince Gilligan. And, you know, quality of that movie aside. Um, and also original props from Scream. The mask of the Ghostface Killer from Scream was part of this auction, was part of these things that you could win if you were donating to Planned Parenthood and to the Dreamcatchers Foundation. This was a guy who was concerned with social justice, who was concerned with activism, who was concerned with the plight of the people that were around him and the people that did not have 
the privilege and the experiences that he did. So no, I don't think it's reading too deep into this movie. I think this is exactly what he was trying to do, and I think the film that we see is exactly the movie that he was trying to make. And yeah, it's a bit weird. <laughs> it's unlike a lot of films that I've ever seen before, and I think if anyone else tried to make this movie, it might lean a bit more into the comedy, um, you know, or, or maybe lean a bit more into the the realism and the bleakness of the situation. And this one toes that line, and sometimes it doesn't necessarily work, and sometimes um, it's exactly what you need to take in the lessons that he is trying to, to, to teach people, the comments that he is trying to make about the society. It just so happens to take part or, or, or take place in sort of a, a goofy Home Alone-esque fashion, and I'm okay with that. Um, I also kind of have to give credit to uh, Everett McGill and Wendy Roby, who play the man and the woman, uh, because they don't just play villains, but they play people who are so clearly atrocious, despicable people. I mean, Everett McGill and, and Wendy Roby, they were, of course, uh, they played a married couple in uh, in Twin Peaks, and that's how Wes Craven uh, got to know them and, and cast them in the movie. But they have to play people which are so vile, not just in terms of their attitudes towards other races, but also just people who the film implies are perhaps incestuous, incestuous cannibals, even. <laughs> what what actor gets that script and says, like, yes, I will absolutely do this, like, hands down, sign me up immediately. I don't want to say they're thankless roles, but they are, they are the brunt of all the rage, of all the anger, and of all the bile. And they do it in a manner which is sort of a, not that we understand them, but we don't want to turn the movie off, which I think is certainly a credit to them. If you want to watch or rewatch uh, The People Under the Stairs, it's easy enough to do. If you are a DirecTV subscriber, I don't know why you would be, but if you are, you uh, can watch the movie for free there. Otherwise, for the rest of us, you have to rent or buy it on either Amazon, uh, Google Play, YouTube, Fandango, Voodoo, uh, the Microsoft Store, or Redbox. But uh, that does it for this episode on The People Under the Stairs. Of course, I am always curious as to what um, my listeners have to say, whether they agree, whether they disagree, or somewhere in between. You can email me at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com. You can tweet at me at NolanFixesTeeth. Um, or you can um, chime in on the comments fields by going to battleshipretention.com, finding I Do Movies Badly in the drop-down menu, and catch up on back episodes of I Do Movies Badly on um, iTunes, on Google Play, on Spotify, and uh, on Amazon Music as well. So that does it for uh, Wes Craven's The People Under the Stairs. Be sure to tune in next week where I'll be watching Jordan Peele's Get Out and where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 